This is Epicenter episode 175 with guest Miguel Vias. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by the Ledger Nano S, the hardware wallet which sets the new standard in security and usability. Get it today at ledgerwallet.com and use the offer code EPICENTER to get 10% off your order. And by Jax. Jax is the user-friendly wallet that works across all your devices and handles both Bitcoin and Ether. Go to jax.io and embrace the future of cryptocurrency wallets. Welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects and startups driving decentralization and the global blockchain revolution. My name is Brian Fabian Train. And I'm Meher Roy. Today we'll talk to Miguel Vias, who is head of XRP Markets at Ripple. We're going to walk through topics such as the overall vision of Ripple, uh, what XRP is setting out to solve and its, in, and its utility, and some of the future plans uh, Ripple would have around XRP and uh, and around XRP the math based currency. So before we start, let's have a quick intro from Miguel. Miguel, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in this technology. Sure, Mahit. Uh, guys, again, uh, thanks for for having me on. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to be on the pod. I've been following you guys for about a year and a half. So uh, when I got the opportunity to, to to do it, I was pretty excited. So thank you. So I found Ripple in early 2014. Um, I had started to follow the Bitcoin space tangentially and um, after the run-up, started to do research on other coins and seeing what, what else was out there and read the, uh, the consensus white paper and was immediately uh, viscerally, viscerally attracted to the elegance of, of the solution. Um, it, it did feel like, a, like an iteration on what was already out there and maybe an improvement. So... Uh, I immediately bought, you know, enough XRP as uh, my fiance then would let me, and my wife now no longer lets me, um, <laughs> and started following the company. Uh, at the time, I was at the CME, and I was uh, involved in some of the digitization projects internally. I was involved in some of the venture projects, and became friendly with Rumi Morales, who runs CME Ventures, and she and I, you know both big Ripple fans, CME as an investor, and basically just fly on the wall, kept following the company. And in, in the fall of last year, I got a call uh, from Justin Strasbaugh, who is on Rumi's team, and Justin said, hey, you know, Ripple's looking for somebody to help them build the XRP markets. Do you know anybody who might be able to help? And I said, look, I'd love to help Ripple any way I can. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of the company. And turns out they had an office in New York, which I was not expecting. That was an easy decision. So you mentioned CME before, right? So that's the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, right? Yep, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, largest futures exchange in the world. When I made the move to Ripple, I was running their precious metals desk, uh, product suite, if you will. Um, largest futures product suite in the world. So uh, there's a lot of synergy there between... And pre- previous to that, I was a trader for 11 years, uh, mostly bulge bracket investment banks, all in precious metals and in options. So the move actually over to digital assets is a pretty seamless one, given that there are some pretty significant similarities between precious metals and digital assets. Right? I mean, Bitcoin is often called digital gold. Um, you know, the immutability of it, the fact that it doesn't degrade, the fact that there's a limited supply, all of those things kind of transfer over. Um, and I, I think you're, you're watching those worlds meet um, pretty quickly. In fact, every time I turn around, somebody's trying to digitize gold. And I, I, always, I always kind of wonder, well, isn't that what, you know, what some of these other assets are supposed to be? So for me, the, the, the move from, a, uh, from almost a, uh, like a fundamental understanding perspective was pretty simple. And how do those markets that we see today in, in the cryptocurrency, in the blockchain space, compare to you know, those more mature precious metal markets that you were working with before? 
it's important to recognize that the digital asset space is pretty small. I mean, it's getting bigger. Um, every day, it seems like there's more interest and more money flowing into the space. But if you take the, the market capitalization of all of the digital assets, I mean, maybe you get the 30 billion, maybe. And, you know, that is a few hours trading on a really busy FX desk. Um, you know, you're talking, when you're talking capital markets and foreign exchange and securities, you're talking trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. So, you know, I, I don't mention the point in order to belittle the digital asset space, but only to point out that it's very early in its development. I mean, it's got a long way to go. Um, one of my goals in particular for XRP is to get it to that level sort of institutional grade liquidity, um, which we, you know, we have our work cut out for us there, but that is the goal. The other <laughs> the, the biggest comparison or the thing, the thing that always uh, enamors me about these markets is the volatility. I mean, I, what's happening now right now is absolutely awe-inspiring in terms of volatility, um, especially after last week in the, uh, the Bitcoin ETF decision. You know, I think the markets have caught many, many people off guard. And, you know, part of my job internally is to make sure that I, I communicate to the company what's happening in these markets and try to make sense out of it, um, which is difficult given how opaque a lot of it is, some of it on purpose, obviously. And, you know, I think if you look at the markets over the last few weeks after the Bitcoin ETF, I think most people expected Bitcoin to absolutely fall out of, you know, out <laughs> of the sky. And it didn't. Um, in fact, it had a little down move and then it came right back up. Uh, it feels to me like that gave folks, uh, like fiat investors, or if you will, or speculators, a lot of confidence and they, they jumped back into the space. But as you guys pointed out last week, I, I watched the, the, uh, the Polychain podcast and you guys were talking about sort of the scalability issues and the fact that the confirmation times are slow and there's chatter about a hard fork in Bitcoin because the community can't quite seem to figure out what's best for itself. You know, the crypto space knows that very well. Right? I mean, that is not some secret. Right? I, I'm not even really deeply enmeshed in, 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 in the space the way traditionalists are, and even I know that. Right? So I think what you've seen over the last few weeks is the smart crypto money, if you will, flow out of Bitcoin into these other digital assets, right as the fiat money has flowed in. So you're kind of watching this cycling effect, which has been absolutely mesmerizing to, to witness. So yeah, it's interesting times. That's very interesting how you, you point out. You can certainly be right. Where do you think this is going to go with the markets? What, what are your expectations regarding Bitcoin, regarding um, Ether, and maybe regarding uh, the overall uh, space? I mean, I guess Ether is perhaps, you know, at this point, uh, most of people's minds because that has just been going up uh, in uh, insane bubble, like reminiscent of, I guess, Bitcoin in 2013. You know, it's, it's difficult to tell, given, given, again, I think the relative small number of players in the space, the relative small market caps, difficult to say, okay, who's going to win this? Uh, what are the prices going to be? Like, I mean, it's, it's crystal ball, right? I mean, you just mentioned the fact that I might be right about my analysis of what's happening. I could totally be wrong because truthfully, nobody knows, right? People have can conjecture all day. But I think what will, what is not, um, what is not debatable, is that what you're watching is certain digital assets gravitate towards certain use cases and start to prove their utility, and as a result, are driving value into those coins. Right? So the the Ethereum tailwind has very much to do with the fact that it seems like it really has some usage. Um, it really has utility for some larger institutions. I do. I will say I do find it somewhat confusing in that most of what the, the Ethereum use cases are, are revolve around are private instances of Ether or, or of Ethereum, not necessarily public instances. So I understand from a marketing perspective how it's a huge boon. I guess time will tell whether or not you know, those word, worlds all start to interoperate. And you know, one of the things that we're big on um, and I know you guys have, have had Stefan on the pod and, and, and Evan as well. We are very big on interoperability. Um, you know, this idea that one asset will not win the space, one ledger will not win the space. There are likely to be many different use cases, many different coins that fit perfectly for different use cases that then need to talk to each other for value to transfer seamlessly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that that is something that we're all going to watch happen and we're very much focused on.
so like your answer brings uh, brings me to the next topic which is uh, i like to i like you to explain uh, what the term internet of value means right so whenever whenever you go to the ripple website i think most prominently this term features that you ripple is building the internet of value what is it really sure so the from a high level the the goal of the company is to move money as efficiently as information moves today so if you think of you know uh, the internet right i mean i can send you information instantaneously but if i want to send you value especially cross border um that's not really possible right? and you know Brad our ceo likes to always mention the fact that if you wanted to send $10,000 right now to the uk the fastest way to do it would be to hop on a plane um it's uh you know th- that that's not where we should be in 2017 so when when we say we 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 want to create this internet of value that's at a very high level what we mean we want money to flow as easily as information does today as an international traveler when i'm traveling around the world i actually to me whenever i swipe a credit card it feels to me that money does flow instantaneously mm-hmm. and money does flow cheaply and the whole system seems to work seems to work well yeah. right like now now what ripple is in in some sense saying is that okay there's go, there's a need for an internet of value where money has to flow better is it the case that you're solving a non-existent problem no i mean if you look at if you look at international payments right the failure rate is 3 to 5% um usually yes you don't see it because someone is taking the pain on for you um and as a result you you don't you don't end up feeling it directly you do end up feeling it in terms of what you pay for some of the services that you're receiving um so if you can streamline the back end actually cost lower value flows more easily commerce happens more quickly i mean if you look at a company like uber or amazon that has to send you know millions of payments a year to thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people maybe millions of people globally um using an old batch and file system um you know many uber drivers today still get paid biweekly why why can't you just swipe your card and have the money mm. flow like if i'm in bangalore and i have a us credit card believe you me when i swipe that card that driver is not getting paid instantaneously right um that's going to take a little while for him to actually get the money so you know these these new corporates in particular uh, are very much driving the demand for small value high volume international you know cross border payments and as we as we've built out our solution so if you think of think of ripple having um kind of three core technologies one is called ripple solution and you know that very much solves for operational inefficiencies at the messaging level between banks for instance right and that still leaves an issue for funding of payments right so if a bank wants to send a payment from brazil um to india uh it's like it likely has to, and it's an international bank it's an hsbc bank let's say it likely has to have funds at both those locations funds that just sit there do nothing basically waiting for payments to happen right that's capital that is not being efficiently used so that drives prices up and capital is not getting any cheaper so the messaging ripple solution will solve for that messaging operational issue it does not solve for the liquidity problem that's where xrp and rcl come in right for small value high volume international payments digital assets and xrp in particular are absolutely perfect right so the 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 liquidity on demand if you will so instead of having to fund these payments what the bank could do is take the reals buy xrp move the xrp and then sell it for a rupee and deliver it locally in india that can happen in seconds um whereas using traditional reals it could take days so that's the kind of the 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 second leg of the stool and then the third leg of the stool is iop and in ledger protocol um which then allows that bank ledger irrespective of which liquidity solution it's using connect to other ledgers globally so you know that might be the visa ledger it might be the mastercard ledger it could be the alipay ledger um but allowing all of those ledgers to talk to each other is key um especially as you see more and more growth in these um in these type of payment companies these uh, blockchain based payment companies that's quite interesting i think we'll spend most of the time going through all of these components uh, of the answer okay <laughs> so so ripples then 
then thesis is that i mean the difference between let's say 20 years ago uh, so i think the like a lot of the financial systems that exist today came about after the first wave of computerization like in the 70s and 80s yeah and and at that time um, the the need of the hour was mostly corporate payments right some company in the in the us paying another company in china and corporate payments were like large value and they could afford to be slow right because it's 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 a large value payment so even if it reaches like 3 days later that's fine but what you're essentially saying is now that with the development of like these platforms uh, like uber airbnb or um uh, all of these new internet businesses like we're starting to get like global payments that are like you know 20 dollars from Miguel to Meher and, and across different countries and maybe the need for these like small value payments quick payments is going to be the trigger for building a new base system based on cryptography you said it much more eloquently than i ever could meher thank you thank you <laughs> that that that's exactly right right we're building sort of uh, infrastructure 2.0 payment infrastructure 2.0 um uh, the analogy we use internally um usually revolves around shipping containers and how, you know, when the infrastructure for shipping things globally went from, you know, wooden crates to standardized metal shipping containers, commerce exploded 700%, right? Um, so if you can grease the wheels of commerce, and payments are certainly one of the pain points of those gears, if you can grease those gears, then things move much more quickly and commerce happens much more and you create growth as a result. Yeah, and, and uh, one one sort of analogy that I've also heard uh, or seen a few times that kind of just explains how uh, how broken payments are is that you know often if I want to pay you know you may hear in the U.S. now then if I'm actually gonna go on a plane with the cash and fly over there and hand it to you right that will often be faster than uh, trying to make a bank transfer a bank wire. And, uh, and also some area where this is not strictly a payments issue, but where the, just the brokenness becomes very obvious is when you look at the international trade and you have you know, cargo that's being shipped, but uh, to the execution of, for example, a letter of credit, which is essentially sort of the payment, right, and the terms around it would take longer than actually it takes the cargo to get there. And, and so, it, it kind of makes it obvious just how ridiculously inefficient a lot of these processes are. It should be no surprise to, to folks in the tech space that you know um, innovation tends to move much more quickly than than infrastructure does. And infrastructure is sort of you know it's big and clunky; it's hard to change. Um, so it's quite the challenge for infrastructure to catch up to commerce. Um, you know, commerce and technology move at lightning speed. So let's take a break to talk about the Ledger Nano S the new flagship hardware wallet by Ledger. I'll pass it over to Ledger CTO, Nicolas Baca, who can tell you all about Ledger's security features and SDK. The Ledger Nano S is a personal security device based on a secure element, a screen and button, so that you can verify everything that is done on the device and make sure that you are really doing what you wanted to do. Compared to our previous solutions, this device is based on the latest generation secure element, the ST31 from STMicro. The SC31 is, is using a secure ARM core, which means that you can have the same ease of development that you would have on a generic uh, microcontroller, but benefit from the security features of a secure element. Security features uh, include an application firewall at the lowest level that lets you protect applications from each other, which means that you can load multiple applications on the hardware wallet, even post-issuance. And you as a developer will be able to leverage these features to load your own application without our authorization and without any kind of authorization from the vendor. We will be providing this device with an open SDK um, that lets you do anything you want with this device. We provide sample applications for cryptocurrencies, different cryptocurrencies, so Bitcoin, Ethereum. Uh, and we will also provide a FIDO authenticator and you will be free to add everything you like. For example, you could add some secure messaging, some encrypted chat, and you'll see that the solution is quite powerful and very easy to develop with. The Nano S sets the new standard in hardware wallet security and usability. You can get yours today at ledgerwallet.com. And when you do, 
be sure to use the offer code EPICENTER to get 10% off your first order. We'd like to thank Ledger for their support of EPICENTER. One of the topics we wanted to cover on briefly was um, basically the transformation Ripple has gone through because Ripple used to be um, Mayher, I guess, you know, he's been following the company for a long time and you have as well, right, where Ripple was more focused on uh, peer-to-peer payments and money and, and now it's very institutionally focused. What, what is your point of view on, on that transformation? Like, as I mentioned, and Mayher and I were talking about earlier, uh, I started following him in, in 2014. I had a Ripple Trade account. Um, you know, that's where I bought my first XRP. Uh, so I, I was in there with you, and uh, I too saw a, a bit of a change, right? And a lot of that, um, some of it was just foresight. I mean, if you look at the way, um, and I know this is going to be a little self-serving, so I apologize in advance, but it, we, were, we were ahead in terms of the institutional use cases, I think, of some of these other initiatives, right? So we were talking about Ethereum earlier, very much clearly focused on enterprise and businesses, not retail in any way, shape, or form, not you know, C2C in any way, shape, or form. Um, and you're seeing these other blockchain-based initiatives do the same thing now, DAH, um, Hyperledger, I mean, you name it, right? Everybody is focusing on businesses and, and fixing infrastructure like we were just talking about using either you know, distributed ledger technology or blockchain. So that actually was happening, I think, in late 2014, early 2015 in the company. And again, I've been here all of four months, so my timeline may be a, a little skewed. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the defining moments for the company was the FinCEN ruling in 2015 when we got fined by FinCEN for some relatively minor KYC AML infractions, but infractions nonetheless. And, um, you know, I, I, looking back on it, I don't think it, it's a surprise. Um, you know, uh, fintech startup in San Francisco having airtight KYC AML um, kind of procedures is probably uh, uh, asking a bit much, but n- neither here nor there. It happened. And at that point, there were some serious restrictions around what we could do with retail use cases. So um, luckily for the company, the, the focus was already moving towards institutions and the banks in particular. And I've said this internally a few times over the last few months. You know, I can only imagine what it must have felt like for the folks inside of Ripple uh, the day after the FinCEN ruling comes out, uh, as they've already decided to focus on banks. <laughs> it's like, oh, nice. We're going to build this whole startup uh, trying to help financial institutions, but these guys just told us that you know we're not good at a few things. But interestingly, it it actually ended up helping the company quite a bit because when you go through something like that, it means you've been pretty deeply vetted by a regulator. So the banks have a a certain amount of uh, confidence in working with you now because you have been legitimized a little bit. Um, And and there's also like this, you've joined the club of getting fined because every bank has gotten fined for something. So uh, it, it ended up actually not being something bad at all for the, for the bank use case and, and helping the company quite a bit. Um, and you've seen, I mean, look, you know, we work with 90 banks globally. Um, you know, we, we have 15 in-production deployments. Um, it has helped the organization become enterprise grade, you know, to the point where, I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the, the Bank of England announcement today, but Bank of England is using our technology to, to POC payments internationally using uh, uh, Ripple Solution and, and IOP. You know, that doesn't happen, um, probably, to, if I'm being honest or fair, uh, without that FinCEN ruling. So uh, at the time, I'm sure it, w- it felt like an existential threat, but it ended up being great for the company. Why did the fine exactly happen? So it's, it's, it's all public. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I, can, I can send you guys all the wonderful links. It, made for, it makes for wonderful bedtime reading. Um, but basically, uh, if, if I remember correctly, there was a few folks on, uh, customers of XRP2, which is our financial entity that hadn't been properly KYC'd AML. KYC means know your customer. AML means anti-money laundering. It's a very big deal when you're dealing with digital assets, given some of the history in the space. So, um, yeah, that was it. So moving a bit to, to the topic of XRP. By, by the way, my favorite topic in the whole wide world. So we could talk about this for a long, long Very time. Very good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Okay, well then let's move to the topic of XRP. Um, now XRP is, uh, I, uh, at least from an outsider's perspective, it seems like in the past XRP was very much at the center of Ripple strategy. You know, it was like, okay, Ripple's gonna build this network that people are gonna use to move money around. Ripple owns a lot of XRP. XRP is gonna increase in value and that's kind of the business model. And now my impression has been that this has changed in Ripple and that the focus has shifted to other areas uh, where, you know, now the software being built for banks has been licensed and support being done and things like that. So what's, what is XRP and what's the evolution that XRP has taken as part of Ripple's strategy? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's one I... I revel in being able to answer in a public forum um, because <laughs> I, I get the question a lot privately. So as we mentioned, right, there, there definitely was, uh, there was a shift ongoing early in 15, late 14 to more in, an institutional use case for the company generally. Um, and I, I can't speak to whether or not how deeply that involved XRP RCL directly because I wasn't there. Um, but obviously FinCEN put the brakes on RCL a little bit right, in terms of usage. So when we move to, to start building software for banks, um, you know, at the time, if you're talking, was that 2015, um, you know, that was before the, the term blockchain was very popular. Um, you know, back then it was just cryptocurrencies and, you know, they sometimes didn't have the greatest reputation, right? <laughs> so uh, banks weren't exactly jumping in or leaning in if you will, with respect to digital assets, which was fine, right? So all that, all that happened was it became a sequencing sort of strategy. And the idea is, look, we're going to build you software that's going to help you no matter what. We're going to help you operationally up here. And you'll notice as we move forward and as we develop that the perfect liquidity solution for some of your biggest pain points is going to be XRP RCL. And you'll come around to using it when you realize that and when you become more comfortable. And I think we started to see that in 2016, where all of a sudden everything blockchain was fine. Like I'll, ne I'll never forget, yeah, it was 2016 consensus versus 2015 consensus in New York. And it was literally like a sea change. Like from 2015 to 2016, I felt like the whole established enterprise world had figured out distributed ledger technology and blockchain. It was unreal. Um, so that then allowed... I think uh, a reemergence, if you will, of, of XRP RCL as a liquidity as a liquidity story. Currently, though, I, I am absolutely fascinated by where we are with respect to the payment space because, in that time, in these eighteen to twenty-four months, you've seen a whole new type of payment company emerge. Right, I'm talking about Veeam and Wire, guys like Paycase, that use. Um, the blockchain for payments, right? And today, primarily because of the liquidity, that is all going through Bitcoin. But, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a Bitcoin basher in any way, shape, or form, but if we're being honest, you know, Bitcoin's not the best asset for payments because the confirmation time is slow and getting slower. So the, the strategy right now inside of Ripple is very much, and that's why I'm here, is to build fiat XRP liquidity in order to run payments through it. Right? So the goal, and you watched our, um, I don't know if you guys, I don't think you guys follow it that closely, so I will tell you that in, uh, in December, we launched, um, we launched XRP on Bitstamp. Um, we're working with a few other digital asset exchanges to continue to launch it in different currencies, right? so that we can start to build the liquidity for that use case that I, that I, that I described earlier, where someone could easily run a payment from Brazil to India um, in seconds. And there is no doubt in my mind that given all the wonderful attributes of every other coin out there, that for payments, because of the operational efficiency, because the consensus, the consensus mechanism is so efficient and everything happens so quickly, that XRP is the best, the best digital asset for payments. Um, so that's, that's the use case. And I spoke earlier about how value for any digital asset is, is going to end up being driven by utility in the long run. In the short run, you're going to get whatever you get. I mean, people buy and sell things for myriad reasons. In the long run, if your asset isn't useful, then it's not going to be around. So 
that's our that's our use for is very squarely in payments. I mean, after all, we're a payments company or a payment software company. So, so the idea is that XRP is going to be used as this bridge currency. So when uh, when the flow of money needs to go from say, I don't know, from from India until Mexico. Right? Yeah. So so that is the INR and the Mexican peso. There there may not be a direct market between the INR and the Mexican peso just because. There's very few people that want to do this kind of movement. Uh-huh. So you're trying kind of pitching XRP as this uh, asset in the middle. That asset has a strong market with INR, and that asset has a, has a deep market with uh, the Mexican peso. Right. And then uh, somebody can easily go through, go from INR to Mexican peso or back very easily. Yep. Like, who do you imagine will do this? Is is the future that in the future? It's going to be small banks, medium banks, big banks doing this kind of transfer, or is it going to be retail people like me and Brian in different countries using uh, the Ripple system and XRP to do it? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be. I mean, if I if I have my wish, my hair, it'll be everybody. Um, but I think um, I think people will use it, and it'll end up going through some sort of a funnel. Um, that then ends up using that liquidity. So not you directly, right? Like you are not going to send, you, know, you are not going to be a money services business that does this transaction, but you'll deal with a money services business that does it or with a bank that does it. If you look at the banks that we work with, they're almost exclusively international. Uh, again, because we're trying to very much solve for cross-border payment issues. And the... The, the, the use case for XRP speaks directly to that. So I think if I'm looking at a timeline, right, and one of the reasons that I'm so excited about these blockchain-based MSBs um, is that this is happening now. Right? So the use case is, is real. Right? There, this is not a POC. This is in production. Um, the, the challenge for me is going to be putting together the ecosystem that then allows for people to do the same thing that they're doing now um, in Bitcoin uh, in XRP. Um, not easy, right? Um, you know, it's a, a little like herding cats. You have to list, you have to partner, you have to incentivize. You know, on Bitstamp, we put together a volume incentive program, or we helped Bitstamp put together a volume incentive program and funded that. We put a market rebate program so that people could come in and trade for free and um, sort of attract some of that retail paper to trade on the exchange. If you look at a market, and this isn't, you know, this is not a hard and fast rule, but if you have a market where you have a third liquidity providers and market makers, a third traders, whether they're professional or retail, it doesn't really matter, and then a third hedgers, people who actually are using that liquidity for something, you have a very healthy market. Right? The first bit is pretty easy to get. I mean, you know, I've been building liquidity for a while, and all you do is pay folks to provide liquidity. Um, the other two are a little bit more challenging. And, you know, we can partner with the hedgers um, and then we have to build interest in XRP and RCO in order to bring more of the sort of uh, trader community, if you will. Like back in 2015 or 2016, I used to see uh, a a lot of articles and a lot of interest around uh, using Bitcoin as an international payment rail where I'm sending money to somebody else across the world. I am in my fiat currency, that other guy is in his own fiat currency, mm-hmm. but the way uh, I send the payment is, in the middle there is like some company that uses Bitcoin as the rails, so it takes money from me in my fiat currency, converts into Bitcoin, transfers it over the Bitcoin network, and co- does another exchange on the other side and send, sends it to the recipient. So I uh, the, the retail user doesn't get to see Bitcoin at all. Like behind the curtain, it's like the Bitcoin rails that are doing uh, all of the in, yep. uh, the work, right? And I I remember they were like venture capitalists that were like saying oh, this this is the future. There's, there's lots of it. And now what what I feel as if you're saying is it's it's a very similar model to that, uh-huh. with the exception that you're saying that instead of Bitcoin, you want to uh, push XRP in that role. And the reason you're trying to push XRP in this role is A, you work for Ripple, but B, uh, that you're designing the Ripple ledger or the Ripple infrastructure just for that particular use case. Well, it, it's designed 
um, it's 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 very much a payments focused ledger. So um, you know, for instance, we have a we have this feature on Ledger called Payment Channels, which allows you to do I think upwards of fifty thousand transactions per second, just like Lightning, except that we're live, right? So um, you know, we have these things that are already scalable um, in order to run really high volume through the Ledger. So yeah, it's it's designed for it. The reason, one of the reasons I joined Ripple, is that they had the perfect sort of app, if you will, right, in Interledger Plus Solution um, for the perfect digital asset for that app. So it was like a marriage. It was to me, it made so much sense. It was like, well, yeah, this is perfect. Like you marry these three pieces of technology together, and you basically revolutionize international payments. So yeah, I want to do that, um, and it's it's why I joined. Um, you know, obviously now that I'm a, I'm an employee, uh, I want to do it even more. But the look, if you look at everything that we did um, directly on RCL on Ledger, right, in 2014, if you look at two examples in particular, Ripple Trade and RPP, the Ripple Payments Platform, both of which had to go away. Both of those use cases, Ripple Trade being a, an on-ledger exchange where people can trade, and then RPP basically being exactly that mechanism you just described, where fiat comes in, transfers to XRP, moves, and then transfers out to fiat. Both those use cases are happening. They are, it's a, it's a thriving part of the digital asset ecosystem, right? So, you know, again, I think the, the, the sequencing of it um, from an external perspective seems odd, right? Because it seems like, oh, well, and look, I get the question a lot, you know, is, is XRP RCL still part of a Ripple kind of story? And I, I can't tell you how much it is. And the, the fact that, um, you know, now it's sort of clear as day how all of these worlds are merging and we have the perfect asset for it or, or maintain the perfect ledger for it um, is incredibly exciting. So... Uh, yeah, that's definitely what we want to do. So Ripple and XRP have, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around it. I think this is even in the past. Uh, and a lot of it was around, uh, at least my understanding is, so is one XRP and, uh, and the distribution of XRP. Can you run us a little bit through what those controversies are? I, I think the the thing that Contra I, I controversy, Brian. What are you talking about? <laughs> Come on, no way. I've never heard any of this before. Yeah, sure. And um, look, when when the David and, and Arthur um, created the ledger and you know created the basically the whole amount uh, of XRP, um, they donated a bunch to the company, right? With the idea that the company would use this these funds to basically usher the, the technology forward um, instead, of, instead of depending on a sort of a, a broad network of folks who may have interest or not have interest in developing the technology, um, they, they went another route. And they said, look, this is, we're going to take this big stash of XRP, we're going to give it to this company, and you, the company is going to build out the technology using it as a source for funding. Um, I can see how that might have seemed somewhat disingenuous four years ago, right? Um, I mean, here are these people create all this value, and there was a lot of kind of shady things happening in the space at the time. So you have no way to tell whether or not the folks who are doing this are actually being honest and truthful, or whether or not, you know, it's going to be, it's going to end up being something that's, it's, that's not real, right? Uh, and some sort of a fraud. Four years later, we fund, um, through VC money and through, and through XRP, I don't know, maybe the best C++ team in the world in our Ripple D team that constantly maintains and updates that ledger, basically 24 hours a day. And I only know that because I'm on Slack at weird hours of the night and see these guys working. Um, we've taken, you know, like if you go to our office, it's not like the office is filled with Ferraris and Lamborghinis and we're all throwing, you know, champagne truffle parties the money goes right back into the tech. So I feel like the company's been a hell of a steward of the technology and has really worked incredibly hard to build a mature product that works well, that is scalable, that is stable. Yeah, I mean, look, it was a different model. And um, I think there's, there's, certain, there's a certain ethos in the space that 
you know, wasn't at the time um, in favor or understood it or believed it. But I don't know. I, I think at this point, it would be hard to argue with the track record. But so, so right now, can you run us through like how many uh, XRP exist and like how many are owned by Ripple Labs and, and how many are owned by, you know, do you have some idea about who else owns the rest of, you know, purchase those, those institutional individuals? Yeah, so, so we own, I think it's roughly 63 billion of the 100 billion that, that was created initially. The 37 that's out in the wild, if you will, is some of it is founders, some of it is institutionals, a lot of it is folks like myself, right, who have been buying it for a while. Um, so yeah, I mean, we have a rough idea of the mix, obviously not perfect, because once you let it go, it's, it's gone, or people buy it, they buy it. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's the rough breakdown. And look, we, so I mentioned that we've been building We've been building some interesting functionality on the ledger. And just yesterday, we put out a release um, for this, uh, this um, function on ledger that allows you to cryptographically lock, um, you know, basically a payment. So I think one of the things that we struggle with is the fact that there's no supply schedule for XRP, right? Um, it's just like this lump sum of XRP sits over at Ripple Labs and people are like, what are you guys doing with that? What are you guys going to do with that? Right? I'm starting to think about you know, maybe putting some real structure around a supply schedule uh, and figuring out a way if maybe cryptographically we can do that to placate some, some of the controversy and fears around the supply. My here, I, I would actually love your opinion on that, actually, because I know you've been in the space for a long time. Do you think that would be worthwhile? Yeah, I'm sure that could provide some certainty, right? If you're like, okay, you're gonna, you know, sell this amount uh, of XRP, you know, at a specific frequency, uh, you know, for the next five years. Uh, I, I can, I certainly can imagine that that would help, you know, alleviate uh, concerns people might have around um, around buying XRP. Yeah. With all of these cryptocurrencies, especially the ones that have uh, become very successful, there's there's always this narrative, right? So with, with Bitcoin, the narrative now has become it's digital gold predominantly. It's something that's that will that will be scarce, right? With Ethereum, the whole narrative is smart contracts are important. There's gonna be one platform that wins and smart contracts and you're gonna need something to need something as gas and this currency will do that. Uh -huh. Like in this interview, what's kind of coming out very clearly is uh, that that for, for Ripple, uh, the thing you're saying is like XRP, that you're going to make all the efforts in order to make XRP as this bridge currency between currency pairs for payments. So if XRP ends up becoming this bridge currency, then um, then a lot of people would, f would find utility. I like, sorry, I like to say that the goal is to make it the, or the institutional digital standard for international value transfer. Institutional digital standard for international value transfer. I think, I think that, that is good. So, so that is the target it, it's going after. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think for, for a prospective, from the perspective of prospective investor, that is good to see uh, what it is going after. What would definitely be nice is more clarity on what the total supply is going to be. Because some people are, seem to be uncertain that uh, can you create more than 100 billion units of XRP? Nope. No. It's a, literally impossible. You would, have to, okay. you, know, you would have to fork the network and create another, another coin. It's, like imagine you know, every single one, if not every single one, but many other digital assets have a supply schedule and you know exactly what the max is. And once you hit that max, that's, a, that's it. You're done. Same thing in XRP, except the max happened at inception. So there's 100 billion and we can't do it. In fact, every time XRP is used, an infinitesimally small amount gets destroyed. So it's actually, the supply is actually going down. With, with XRP, most of the XRP will be distributed by Ripple Labs, right? So are you taking some measures in order to introduce transparency into where these XRP are, are being distributed and how they will be done? So... Look, at the, at the moment, one of the ways, one of the most aggressive ways that we're distributing XRP is by funding liquidity, liquidity programs on off-ledger exchanges, right? So the, the volume incentive program at Bitstamp, 
and the market rebate program at Bitstamp were all funded through XRP. Um, you know, if we partner with folks and there's a payment involved, it happens through XRP. Right? So I think as we build out, so one of the things that I find very interesting about the Bitcoin space is that everybody's long Bitcoin in the Bitcoin space. And as a result, they all really want Bitcoin to do well. So they all work together, they all build this ecosystem, they invest in each other, right? Um, and there's this sort of virtual cycle that's created a really healthy ecosystem. That starts with the owner, with ownership of the asset, right? So as we start to build out our ecosystem off ledger, right, and start to partner with digital asset exchanges and folks like Bitco, I don't know if you guys saw the announcement with Bitco, but we're working on an XRP solution for storage with Bitco. We, we end up putting XRP in different hands, right? So it starts to start, it starts to proliferate a little bit inside of the ecosystem so that people then have a vested interest in making it work, right? So you start to tie those incentives together. Look, we, I don't know if you guys saw uh, a few weeks after I joined, we published the you know, Q4 markets report. Um, I did see. You know, and I, I want to flesh that out more. I want to be more transparent with what we're doing with the XRP um, in terms of institutional buyers, if we sell any, if we buy any. Um, you know, I want, I want to start to give the market that clarity. There are some things that I can't do, right? Like, I can't give names to people like that, you know, we've transacted XRP with. There's, that's not, you know, there's NDAs and there's confidentiality agreements. So there are limits to how much we can say. Um, but I am very much pushing for more transparency. I think it's, I think it's good, especially because we're not, we're, not doing any, we're not doing anything wrong, right? So it's like, well, why wouldn't we be more transparent? Part of it, I think, has just been, again, um, I think it's been a little bit of resourcing. Uh, it's a small company. You know, we've gone from 80 to 140 people, I think, in the last 12 months. Um, they haven't had a, a real, like, down and dirty markets person in, in, in the building. Um, so I, di- I definitely build a different, I bring a different point of view in terms of what can help us build these markets out and grow liquidity. And I, I agree. I mean, I looked four months ago, I was outside these walls and I was having the same questions, right? So now that I'm inside the walls, I can, I can hopefully start to answer some of those and allay some of the concerns. Let's take a short break to talk about Jax. Jax is your wallet, your complete user interface to cover all your blockchain needs. I've been using it and I've been loving it. Now, Jax supports a lot of different cryptocurrencies. I suppose Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, Ethereum Classic, Zcash, Rep, and they're adding many more. Keep responding to users' needs. Now, with Jax, the nice thing is that you can manage all of those coins within a single wallet and you are in control of your own private keys. They're not on their server. And there's a single 12-word seed that you can use to back up your wallet and all your coins and sync them across different devices. Talking about devices, they're on pretty much any device that you can think of. You can get it on PC, Mac, Linux. You can get it on smartphones like Android and Apple and iPhone. You can get it on tablets or there are even browser extensions for Chrome and Firefox. And on top of that, in JAX, you can actually exchange different cryptocurrencies for each other because they've integrated a shapeshift. And more partnerships and integrations are coming down the line in 2017 that are going to make JAX even better. So JAX is really making blockchain and cryptocurrencies accessible for the masses, easy to use for the masses. Make sure to get your own JAX wallet at JAX.io or you can get it from any of the app stores you are using. We'd like to thank JAX for their support of Epicenter. So the idea behind like these distributing these XRP tokens it would be like, so... So imagine like there's this small bank, right? Um, let's say medium-sized bank, and you today the bank has like system X in order to send money internationally, right? So that that system X is something else. It's it's correspondent banking or yeah, whatever it is, or or whatever it is, right? Now, now ideally you want like this bank that might be based in Mexico to actually. St- transfer some of their international money transfer activities through the ripple ledger right sure so so you in a sense you go to them and and you go and tell them that hey you guys transfer your activity to our to, to, to this ledger mm-hmm. when they end up making that transfer that provides liquidity right because they will need to exchange mexican peso for X, xrp so that creates liquidity between those two pairs but in order to incentivize that behavior of them switching over here 
you give them some XRP. You say, hey, take, I don't know, take these 100 million XRP, keep them. And if the ecosystem succeeds, then you will make uh, capital gains on what we've given you. I mean, is it like that? Not, not quite with, not quite with banks. Um, you know, the, I think as we sort of early on build the ecosystem, certainly that's the strategy with more sort of the digital asset world, if you will, right? Um, you know, the example I gave of sort of the the Bitcoin ecosystem investing in itself because everybody has. Bitcoin does it definitely does not apply to the banks yet, right? Because the banks don't have uh, any digital assets on their books. So, you know, I, I would struggle to see us do that um, with a bank, at least in the next 18 to 24 months. I don't know. I don't know how useful that would be. I think the pitch to a bank would be, look, and we just put out a cost savings model on the website, I think two days ago or three days ago, which shows very clearly when you integrate all of our solutions, how much you save. So the bank should have an appetite for running certain payments through our rails um, using the enterprise software, using Interledger and XRP quite naturally. Um, I think if I'm being if I'm being 100 percent frank, I think the challenge for even a second or a third tier bank is where they're going to source the liquidity from. And that's something that I'm trying to solve for. Right. I mean, if somebody wants to send a, a payment from Mexico to India at the moment, we don't have. A Mexican rail for XRP, right? Not even on a digital asset exchange. And you know, maybe banks get to a point where they're comfortable dealing at, at digital asset exchanges because these, you know, like Bitstamp, for instance, is fully regulated and they have banking relationships. And definitely, the the worlds are coming together. So I think I think we'll get to a point where yeah, banks, no problem, will connect, you know, to Coinbase or Kraken or Bitso or you know wh- whoever it is, and source liquidity that way, um, or you know, the other alternative could be that as this space grows and as liquidity for XRP grows and we get more, we get closer to that goal of institutional standard, places like a Bloomberg Tradebook or an FX All or a Reuters Direct, they start to list digital assets. Now, these are very traditional capital markets FX liquidity pools. Um, if we get to that point, then it becomes very easy for a bank to run a payment through um, through the ledger, right? But really, it's all liquidity dependent, um, which is really what you're solving for with respect to the cross-border payment with XRP. So, Miguel, what do you find most challenging and most fascinating in this process of trying to establish these markets? You know, build this liquidity. I mean, it's, it's challenging, and I, I mentioned uh, the analogy of kind of cat herding, um, you know, really trying to put together a rail, if you will, right? Like an end-to-end rail with two digital asset exchanges, with liquidity providers, with traders, and then on top of that, uh, a payments company to run the payments through there. I mean, that I get tired just saying that. Um, so... If we're talking about the actual work of doing it, it's it's pretty arduous. Um, but at the same time, you know, I joined the company. I think um, maybe somewhat idealistically, as we all do when we take big leaps and and, and big uh, big risks, um, because I've always believed from the minute I read the consensus, the white paper on the consensus mechanism for XRP, I believed it had the, the capability of changing the world. And, you know, I've had conversations with, you know, Chris Larson and Arthur and David around the fact that it is, I think, transformational software that um, we, we kind of owe it our best effort to get it to where it belongs and where it deserves to be. So, you know, being part of a team that's focused on doing that and, um, you know, literally doing something that's never been done before Oh, it's pretty cool. My wife thinks I'm nuts because every other word out of my mouth these days is XRP, and I seem to be working, you know, 27 hours a day and having dreams about payment rails. Um, but I, I firmly believe that that's 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 how you get to do something really special. And the company is um, it's amazing what it's been able to achieve. Um, incredibly solid. Our our leadership is amazing and. Um, 
I think we're on a, a path that hopefully we'll all look back someday and be like, wow, I can't believe I was a part of that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm obviously pretty stoked. Like, how do you intend to distribute the rest of the XRP then? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question, Mahir. And I, I don't necessarily know that we'll ever distribute all of it. In my mind's eye, there's a possibility where, you know, we end up more of a lending kind of, uh, you know, more of a lending lender of last resort capacity, maybe. Uh, I think that would be a little strange for a software company. And maybe some things would have to, to change structurally. Maybe we have to have a different organization or something. Who knows, right? Um, but as these capital markets develop, as liquidity develops, there are going to be folks who, you know, if they want to provide liquidity in the asset, don't want to necessarily own the asset because that puts them in harm's way for uh, price movements. So if you can borrow the asset and create liquidity that way, it's actually a much more efficient way to be part of the, uh, of the liquidity mechanism. It's how traditional capital markets work. I mean, my first job on a trading desk was managing the repo book the overnight Tom Next kind of liquidity provision that every day we had to roll. Um, there's nothing like that in digital assets. Um, so part, partly because they, they, the transfers happen instantaneously, but also partly because it just hasn't developed. And it, it, one of my longer term goals after I get the ecosystem built out, after I get payments running through there, as I start to merge, I try to merge the two worlds, the digital asset markets and the traditional capital markets, as I try to do that, I think one of the levers that we'll be able to pull or pull will be lending. And as a result, I don't necessarily know that we'll, I mean, we'll have to, we'll need some XRP, right, in order to do that. Um, so I don't, I don't, I guess along with the way of saying, I'm not sure we'll ever get rid of all of it and sort of let it all out into the wild, um, partly because there is some utility for us or maybe some other, you know, organization having it to make sure that the markets are always liquid. Does that mean there isn't like a clear plan or schedule on how these are going to be distributed? T- TBD, my hair. TBD. Um, it's a TBD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one one question to me would be so, like, looking looking at the at the eyes of XRP from a prospective investor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's like when when I try to put think when I think of putting money in Ethereum, I go and look at uh, what DApps are being built because the assumption is there'll be DApps and this value will go up, right? Uh, with with Bitcoin, at least I used to go and see blockchain dot info, the number of wallets growing per year. Is it really happening? Right. So that was my that was my that used to be my my metric. Now, XRP is trying to be this liquidity solution or bridge currency. What do you think is the right metric that neutral observers can look at and um, and see whether it's whether it's working, What's it's going it, whether it's working right. or not. It's going down a good path, and and some data that cannot be just created out of thin air, even by Ripple. So, what what is that kind of data? Yeah, I so. Remember, we were talking a little earlier around what's happening in digital asset markets today with fiat flowing into Bitcoin and then some of that crypto money kind of flowing back into the other digital assets. Um, If you look at the liquidity of all these other digital assets, if you look at uh, Ethereum and you look at Monero and you look at Dash and Litecoin, the vast majority of the liquidity is versus Bitcoin. 85% of the trading volume in every single one of those other assets is, is versus BTC. It is not fiat. It is not fiat money running into those spaces, right? So my litmus test, how I know if I'm succeeding, is how much fiat volume we have versus XRP. Because payments happen in fiat. Nobody is paying for anything in any other digital asset at the moment, right? So... As we build out the ecosystem, as we get listings, as we get liquidity, as we get payments flowing through it, what you should see is more and more fiat volume um, and less and less any other digital asset volume versus XRP. That's how you'll know, at least from an objective perspective. Right? I mean, we'll signal to the market what's happening. We'll give updates. We'll, we'll obviously send press releases and um, you know, inform everyone of the progress. But to your point... You know, that, that's our job. So you, know, you want a, a neutral uh, a neutral litmus test, and I think that would be the cleanest one. Cool. Well, Miguel, thanks so much for coming on today uh, and sharing a bit about XRP. I think a lot of people, you know, they, they'll 
seen XRP, they kind of know about it, but hopefully they'll help and dive a little bit deeper in understanding what exactly XRP is and, and what's coming for XRP. So thanks so much for coming on. Cool. No, I, guys, I, again, I, I can't thank you enough. It's been, a, it's been really fun to be able to talk to you guys about it. Um, I, I look forward to doing it again sometime. I'm certainly very excited to see what, what's going to come out of Ripple. I mean, it is, uh, I guess, the biggest, or certainly one of the very biggest um, blockchain companies in the space, you know, probably together with R3 and, and Consensus or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very thrilled to see kind of what, what kind of experience and POCs really pan out and what we're going to see going into production. Uh, coming out of Ripple or coming out of any of the other companies that have been working uh, so intensively on this. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Oh uh, yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks so much for our listener for once again tuning in. We are part of the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network. You can find this show and other shows on letstalkbitcoin.com. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us an iTunes review that helps new people find the show and it makes us very happy. So uh, thanks so much and we look forward to being back next week.